Late Night Conversations with Patricia Antuli, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Health Conversations. In our health conversations, as I had previously mentioned, we are talking malaria and a very important topic. I remember when the outbreak for COVID-19 came out, we were quite concerned, uh, especially around malaria season, um, around the summer, spring, summertime last year. What will this mean? Because some of the symptoms of malaria are really, really close to those of COVID-19, like uh, the fever and the weakness of the body. So it, it is something that in Africa, we have been grappling with, but it hasn't been given much prevalence and understandably so with the pandemic that is um, drawing our attention right now. I'd like to welcome Dr. Karen Barnes, who's the Director uh, for Pharmacology at Worldwide Anti-Malaria Resistance Network. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Barnes. Thank you, Patricia. Good evening to you and your listeners. It's I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Dr. Barnes, do you feel that uh, the goal for 2025 to eradicate malaria altogether is achievable? Can we attain it in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic? I think it's definitely a goal worth striving for. And I think Southern Africa has made great advances uh, in the last two decades. And so at least in our region, I think elimination in countries like South Africa and our neighbors like Eswatini, Botswana, and maybe even as far as Zambia, it is an achievable goal if we all work together, bringing all partners together. Now, let's talk about the partners that need to come together here, because most of the time when we are talking uh, health conversations, it seems that we put the onus on the departments of health and we put the onus on medical practitioners and scientists Is this the case with malaria or do we all have to pull together? I think the Department of Health has done amazing things. Um, This year we'll be celebrating 100 years since South Africa had its first map of tracking where we get malaria transmission. And 100 years ago we had malaria transmission south of Pretoria and south of Durban. So you can see how good we've been at pushing it back to our borders. But as you say, the Department of Health and medical practitioners cannot work alone. We need the community on our side. We need them to seek diagnosis and treatment within 24 hours of getting malaria symptoms. We need them to complete treatment, even if they feel better sooner. And we need them to allow their houses to be sprayed so that the mosquitoes that transmit malaria can be eradicated. Without killing the mosquitoes, we can't win the malaria fight. The private sector also plays a a great role. A lot of the um, private sector uh, interventions have made a really big difference. And obviously, malaria can affect their work as much as it affects ours. So I think those are the key stakeholders that work together for success. So, Dr. Barnes, is this how uh, we in South Africa managed to uh, eradicate or move out um, uh, malaria from the main cities? And now it's found, you know, mainly in the, in, in the, in the border and outskirt regions. Exactly right. So we've had a very strong indoor residual spraying program. That's when households get sprayed with insecticide. We've mostly had effective drugs to treat malaria, and we've always seen outbreaks come at a time when our insecticides and our drugs fail. 
So we need really good monitoring for drug resistance and insecticide resistance to make sure that those don't compromise the effectiveness of our otherwise strong programs. Atimas, do you live in a region that is malaria prone? If so, please do let us know. Um, or if you've traveled to a place that is malaria prone and you have seen the devastating uh, impact of malaria in a particular community, call in on 011-714-2006 or WhatsApp 0614-104-107. We've got Dr. Um, Barnes, who is a pharmacology uh, director at the Worldwide Anti-Malaria Resistance Network. Let's go to some of the voice notes you have sent. Hi, SAFM, you know. My name is Mike. Ne? Isvar. Okay, so this topic of malaria is very personal. So next week we're going to Lusikisiki to bury one of our own who had traveled to an African state which has not been mentioned as now. Ne? And when they came back, they had a spinal issue and they had to be hospitalized. And when they were, they came back and it was discovered that there was malaria. And this morning he passed away, you know, like 27 years old, architect, you know. I. This thing is real of malaria and we must not undermine it. It is real, he's dead, like okay, he's passed away or he's late. You know, like, now we are going to Lusikisiki to bury him. Uh, We are speechless, all of us. Sure. So sad, Atima, and um, really condolences to you, your colleagues, and the family of uh, uh, your your beloved friend. I mean, Dr. Barnes, a 27-year-old architect, clearly went traveling for work and came back with malaria. It was not detected. These are cases that, I mean, are so often heard that when people travel out of the country, come back, not feel well, it's not really detected, but at a, the last minute, then it is noticed that this person had contracted malaria. Why is it, Dr. Barnes, that the medical fraternity in South Africa finds it so difficult to, to screen for malaria? Um, is it because it's not so prevalent in our country? Um, well, thank you, Mike, for calling in. And I'm so sorry for, for your loss. It is always hard to hear these stories. And yes, Patricia, I think that our teaching is that we always have to have a high index of suspicion for malaria as any healthcare worker, a nurse, a pharmacist, a doctor. Um, And it's particularly highlighted, obviously, when one is working in malaria areas or has traveled to these areas. So if you get a history like that, the first thing to do is to do a rapid test for malaria. You can get the answer in 15 or 20 minutes. So the problems come when people don't give a history of having traveled or um, people don't think of doing a test. And for us, one of the other big problems is that people stay home for too long. They hope it's flu. They hope it will get better by itself. And then by the time the malaria is severe, 
and they only get to a health facility late, it's sometimes too late to be able to save them. So a key message for everyone is if you're in a malaria area or you've traveled to one, if you're sick in any way, seek, tre seek treatment or diagnosis within 24 hours and you'll get an answer in 15 minutes and that can save your life. Let's take a bit of a break. We'll be back. I'd love to hear your contributions, A-teamers. Uh, very, um, very important uh, you know, and critical situation when it comes to malaria that we faced in Africa. But, uh, you know, COVID-19 has overtaken every other uh, pandemic, every other disease, every other situation medically that we are facing. But that does not mean we should overlook malaria because it is a killer. Here we've heard an ATMO says a 27-year-old architect passed away because of malaria. So let's engage on this on 011-714-2006 or on 0614-104-107. That's where you can send your WhatsApps. Is it possible that by 2025 we can find uh, ways, solutions and means to eradicate malaria? Well, that's what we're talking about. Late Night Conversations with Patricia Dooley, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Health Conversations. It's 21 minutes after 10 here on 104 to 107 nationwide SAFM leading the conversation. This is uh, Late Night Conversations and we are talking right now with Dr. Karen Barnes, who's a director for pharmacology at Worldwide Anti-Malaria Resistance Network. Is it possible that by 2025 uh, the goal can be achieved of eradicating malaria in Africa? I really do hope so. Dr. Barnes, what is the role of anti-malaria prophylaxis? Because I am aware that when you're going to travel to a country that has got a high probability of uh, malaria, then you need to take these prophylaxis. Do they really work? Um, great question, Patricia. And yes. Um, most of the recommended prophylaxis options, if they get taken properly, provide more than 90% protection against getting infected with malaria. They should never be used alone. You also need to do all the right steps to avoid mosquito bites with insect repellents and bed nets and burning coils and such like. But in high-risk malaria areas, um, taking prophylaxis exactly as it's meant to be taken um, for as long as it's meant to be taken um, will most protect most, most, most people. It's the, the real challenge is people often are quite good about taking it while they're traveling, but then when they get home, they forget about it. And of course, that's the time when the infection can break through. But used properly, it can be life-saving. So prophylaxis need to go hand in hand with other preventative measures, like you said, the using of nets when you sleep. Uh, I, I know in most countries that have, have are malaria prone, you'll even find nets on the windows. And as a door screen, there'll be net screens on the doors um, on across your bed. And But the mosquito coils, ee, those smell horrible, but they, they are helpful. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they are helpful. <laughs> Let me go to a message here. Uh, Donald in Rustenburg says, uh, good evening, Patricia, and all A-teamers. Hot areas are mostly are malaria infested. We must spray chemicals in stagnant waters as all mosquito breeding sites um, so that we can be safe from malaria. <sighs> yeah. 
I, I, I hear you, Donald, and I think it's something that we need to be cognizant of. Is it possible, um, Dr. Barnes, that here in South Africa, I mean, for instance, in Gauteng, we haven't had uh, cases of malaria, but is it possible that the global warming could cause malaria to come back if we are not careful and the community is not aware of what to do to prevent malaria? Um, global warming can change things in many directions. So if it makes for a warmer, wetter environment, that increases the risk of malaria. But if it creates a drier environment, um, which is also happening in some places, it won't do so. I think that South Africa's got such a good track record in terms of controlling mosquito populations and pushing them right back to our northeastern borders. I don't see that happening unless malaria programs don't get supported either by the government or by the communities. So I think that Gauteng will never return to where it was in the 1930s as a malaria transmission area. And hopefully we'll keep rolling malaria back across southern Africa and then further along in Africa. And and in, in terms of the buy-in from government, is there much in South Africa to ensure that uh, communities are educated around malaria, communities are uh, aware of when they travel in and out of South Africa, that they need to take prophylaxis and, and look after themselves? Um, yes, I think that the health promotion and um, community engagement campaigns have been very active and very successful. And in malaria areas, there's been a message going out about um, when we talk about COVID, we must also talk about malaria. And some of the mass community screening and testing programs have combined testing for both malaria and COVID. So a lot is being done. There's some great innovations. I know that there are DJs working at the moment to compile um, CDs that can be distributed to in places like taxi ranks, truck drivers, um, border posts that will um, play music that will engage the youth and inform them about malaria. So there's a lot of innovation happening. I've got the pleasure of co-chairing the South African Malaria Elimination Committee, and we were meeting today hearing about all the great community engagement that is happening. Of course, there can never be enough, and programs like yours can make all the difference. So we're really grateful when the media engages on this important subject. Let's go to a voice note from one of our A-teamers. Hi, SAFM. Um, Mosa here. So several years ago, I traveled to uh, Uganda and I needed to get a, I think it was a yellow fever shot before going um, and just protect myself using um, uh, insecticide spray against those um, malaria carrying mosquitoes. What I'd like to know is, um, is there does the yellow fever shot, or whatever shot it was that I got to go to Uganda, does it have anything to do with malaria? And if so, do I still uh, carry some resistance being back home in South Africa? Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for that question, A-teamer. Dr. Barnes, please do respond. 
Um, thanks, Musa. A very good question. So a yellow fever vaccine will give you protection against yellow fever, but unfortunately it doesn't give you any protection against malaria. So it's a good thing that you were doing all the right things to avoid mosquito bites when you were in Uganda. There are some parts of Uganda which are um, like cities, high altitude areas that are not at a big risk. And then maybe the travel clinic didn't think that you needed to take malaria prophylaxis tablets. But for many of the areas I've traveled to in Uganda, there's a very high risk of transmission there. Some places you can get three infected mosquito bites per person per day. And in those places, I would say that the tablets would also be needed. Um, long term, though, your yellow fever vaccine only protects you against yellow fever for about 10 years, but not malaria. So if I am a person who travels quite often uh, to uh, countries that are prone with malaria, should I be taking, let's say I, I travel every single month to a different part of the continent, should I be taking prophylaxis every single month? pre and during and post my travels? Um, it's a, a good question. And unfortunately, we always need to look at a little bit more detail about where you're going, when you're going, um, to know whether tablets would be needed every time. Um, if you're going in the middle of winter to low-risk areas, you get by usually with just the uh, avoiding mosquito bites. Um, people who travel frequently fortunately have one option that allows a relatively short course of prophylaxis. It only needs to be taken two days before and then throughout your stay in a malaria area and one week afterwards. So if you were traveling once a month or once every two months, you would still be able to have quite nice breaks um, in between your trips from being on and off prophylaxis. Um, if you are traveling more frequently or you're unable to take that particular option called malinol, then you would might have to go on to long-term prophylaxis, um, which is also highly well studied and known to be safe. And there are good options there too. So is Mike again, and I live in Zirubekong in an agricultural holding where there's a little capability improvement by the Department of Agricultural uh, Fisheries and Forestries where you find that there's a lot of pig farming and there's no sewer system, there's no retaculation in this area and you find that you know people are farming and they they're generating a lot of uh, leachate which results in mosquitoes a whole lot of mosquitoes around summers is you'll never be able to sleep in this place you will never be able to sleep you, 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 you winter is the best place to, to to live where i live summer is bad mosquitoes are on steroids and <laughs> a lot of people you know catch these malaria infections without even being aware that they are catching these infections because 
there's no capability the department of agricultural forestry and Dondon is not even coming to the party you know and come here in summer it's bad it's mosquitoes on steroids and you can be confident that you will catch an infection Sure, I don't want to come visit uh, your area, Mike. Definitely don't want to come visit it. Um, uh, Dr. Barnes, in that area that Mike is talking about, the fact that they've got so many mosquitoes, does that mean that there's a probability of uh, malaria infections? Um, Yes, indeed. So um, there are two parts of the answer. The one is that most mosquitoes don't transmit malaria. So the mosquitoes that we get in Cape Town or you get in Pretoria are not ones that are transmitting malaria. So it's only certain species um, that can do so. But all mosquitoes, nuisance mosquitoes and malaria mosquitoes, breed in stagnant water. So when one does community engagement and education, one of the things that they often discuss is how to reduce all of those empty bottles and buckets lying around where stagnant water allows for the breeding of mosquitoes. And so I think that that sounds very much like uh, a program of work that needs to be done in the area where he lives to minimize the risk of mosquitoes breeding. And then obviously if those are mosquitoes that can transmit malaria, then there's a lot that they can do as um, one of your callers mentioned about, Donald mentioned about spraying um, chemicals called larvicides on stagnant water so that you can prevent the mosquito larvae from developing and that can also reduce the risk and obviously you can also have households, schools and um, buildings sprayed with insecticide, very carefully sprayed with insecticide, not to do any harm, so that the risk of mosquitoes causing harm in that area can be reduced. Um, So it's not just the Department of Agriculture, but the community and the Department of Health that I think could help in Mike's area. Now, as we close off, Dr. Barnes, um, what are the main pointers in achieving uh, the goal for 2025 to eradicate malaria? Um, A big question, but I'm sure you want a short answer. So I think from a community perspective, seeking treatment early, if you have symptoms, flu-like symptoms that could also be malaria, Um, completing your treatment, allowing your house to be sprayed and doing everything that you can do within your environment and on yourself to get personal protection against uh, mosquito bites. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. You still have more. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, then I was just going to say that for businesses to play their part Um, is also really, really critical. For instance, I heard today about some mines who employ a lot of miners from malaria areas and they look after the health of their miners, but they don't provide for prophylaxis or treatment of the miners' families that stay with them. So when businesses are only solve part of the problem, 
you have people falling in the gap between the public and the private sector. So the private sector also plays its part. So private sector, individuals and the public sector needs to, um, government in fact, needs to work together to achieving this goal. Here's to 2025. I'm really hoping that uh, malaria can be a thing of the past by then. Thank you very much, Patricia. And thank you to your A-teamers. Thank you, Dr. Karen Barnes, for joining us. The time now is 36 minutes after 10. A-team, as we continue speaking health, it is very critical that uh, we remember that we've got more than just COVID. COVID is really serious. Um, the third wave is really, really doing its rounds and uh, we can see the impact. The numbers have increased of COVID-19. Um, you know, deaths have increased. It's, it's really a scary time for us. But that does not mean that we should draw our attention away from a critically, um, critically um, dangerous disease such as malaria that is all over this continent, even here in South Africa, although it's not in the main cities, but in the surrounding areas. So we continue talking, drawing the line against malaria. There's a campaign that South African explorer and uh, award-winning mountaineer uh, Sarai Kumalo is going to be joining us shortly.